In this lecture, I'm going to talk a little bit about our work from a few decades ago, initially in David Baltimore's lab and then in my own lab, looking at uh, the discovery of the pre-B receptor and at BTK signaling and how this influenced B cell differentiation. So, the accepted view today about B cell development is that we have two different B cell subsets. So, from a fetal liver stem cell, you can get B1 cells. And so, B1 cells are self-renewing B cells, which uh, have a generic function in dealing with a certain set of pathogens. B2 B cells are the garden variety B cell. They are derived from a bone marrow-derived stem cell, an adult stem cell. And then they go through various stages of differentiation. And we eventually get two subsets, follicular B cells and marginal zone B cells. And marginal zone B cells are also self-renewing. But then the garden variety B cell we normally talk about is a follicular B cell. In 1983, our understanding of B cell development consisted of the following stages. We knew there were cells which are committing to the B lineage. So, those were called pro-B cells. Uh, They hadn't yet rearranged their antibody chains. Then we had pre-B cells, which had completely rearranged the antibody genes and which contained intracellular mu IgM heavy chains, so intracellular mu. And then we had a stage of development called the immature B cell stage, which had IgM on the surface, just heavy chain and light chain. Then we had mature B cells, which have both IgD and IgM on the surface. And then once these cells were activated, we know a lot more in between right now, which I'm not getting into. Once these cells were activated, we knew eventually we would get plasma cells, which were factories for the secretion of antibodies. This was our view. Now, one of the questions that had come up early in people thinking about the immune system was, though we have two chromosomes, maternal and paternal, and we could make two antibodies in every cell, two antibody heavy chains and so on, somehow on each cell we only express one antibody or one antigen receptor. And this is important because if we express two receptors, where would clonal specificity be? We wouldn't have the clonal selection theory. Okay, you need to have a single receptor on a single cell. So, the phenomenon, unknown at that time as to how this happened, by which we made sure that in, in immune cells, we expressed only the paternal or only the maternal copy of the antibody heavy and light chain genes, was called allelic exclusion. And allelic exclusion is central to having specificity in the immune system. And when I came out as a postdoc, I wanted to work on allelic exclusion because I thought, if this goes wrong, then you'll get autoimmunity. And I was interested in the phenomenon. And uh, allelic exclusion, the experiments that we had done earlier on, and this is one example of such an experiment, was to take two mice which have different polymorphic forms of the antibody heavy chain gene. So, in this case, we have IgHA and IgHB. When you cross these mice, you now have an F1 mouse, which is IgHA and B. It has both the A allele and the B allele. But when you look at individual B cells, each B cell expresses either the A allele or the B allele, never both. So, this proved that there was truly a phenomenon called allelic exclusion, and you could describe it in these terms, but what was the mechanism? How did this happen? How did we actually achieve this? So, 
in order to understand this, in uh, the Baltimore lab, Rudy Grosschettel did an experiment where he made transgenic mice. That is to say, he made a mouse which contained a rearranged antibody heavy chain gene. Okay? So, this is just to remind you that the heavy chain locus contains, you know, V, D, and J segments. But if it's rearranged, you have one V joined to one D, one joined to one J upstream of the constant regions. So, he took a rearranged gene after the gene had been, you know, put together in developing B cells. And he put this gene into the fertilized egg of a mouse. Okay? So, basically, uh, just to remind you again why this phenomenon is important is we do have a phenomenon called junctional diversity as well. Okay? We have, when we, and we discussed this in the previous lecture, when you join two pieces of DNA, you can create diversity at the junctions. And we described how we create diversity at the junctions, adding P and N nucleotides. Okay? And we also wanted to understand how do you select cells which have done the right rearrangements? And we wondered if this could be linked to allelic exclusion. So, if you didn't add a multiple of three bases at a junction, then that cell is not going to be able to make an antibody heavy chain gene that means anything. So, if I added 11 bases or 17 bases, then I'm not going to get an antibody protein that's correct. If I added 12 or 15 bases, it's fine. Now, how do you make out the difference? How do you know which cell's good and which cells are going to survive? And these were all the questions that were in our minds. So, now, when you look at the antibody heavy chain gene, this is an example of a rearranged heavy chain gene at the bottom. So, if you look over here, so we've put VDJN together. And then this is going to be transcribed to give you two messenger RNAs, a longer one which can give you the membrane form of the heavy chain and a shorter one that can give you the secreted form of the heavy chain. So, the antibody can function both as a receptor and as a secreted molecule. So, by alternative splicing, you can get two different forms of the heavy chain RNA. And then this gives you two different proteins. And this is just shown in this slide that you can have a secreted antibody. In this case, I'm showing you IgG. Or you could have a membrane IgG, which has a transmembrane region that goes across the membrane with a little cytoplasmic tail. Okay? So, he just took the whole rearranged heavy chain gene and he made a transgenic mouse. Okay? So, this transgenic mouse... So, here you have a heavy chain gene. So, just the whole heavy chain gene has both the membrane and secreted form capable of being made, injected into the male pro pronucleus of a fertilized egg. This is put into a pseudo-pregnant female. Then the female has pups. And then the pups, the founder is the pup which actually carried the transgene. Not everyone would be lucky. Not every cell would actually carry the transgene. And then the, the founder was then bred. And then we look at all the progeny of this founder mouse, the one which carried the transgene in it, and you discover that now endogenous heavy chain genes are not rearranged. So, by putting in a rearranged heavy chain gene into an animal, such that it would be expressed in every B cell in that animal, now the endogenous maternal and paternal chromosomes for the heavy chain gene are not rearranged. So, this suggested that this may be a mechanism of allelic exclusion and that there was a feedback that somehow heavy chain, rearranged heavy chain, proteins could send some feedback signal to allow the prevention of heavy chain gene rearrangement. Okay? So, another experiment was done. This was from Phil Leader's lab by Michelle Nussenzweig, 
where they put in only the membrane form of the heavy chain gene. After these first experiments had been done, when you just put the membrane form of the heavy chain gene, again, you got allylic exclusion. If you put the secreted form, the one that doesn't function as a receptor, the one that's secreted, it did not give you allylic exclusion. So, so somehow, the membrane form of the heavy chain gene made some protein which signaled somehow, which prevented rearrangement of the immunoglobulin genes. So we talked about VDJ recombination in the previous lecture. So basically, that entire phenomenon of the immunoglobulin heavy chain locus was somehow blocked. Okay. So if the membrane form of the heavy chain signals to mediate allelic exclusion, the question I ask is, what does it bind to? How does it signal? What is it doing? And uh, one of the experiments I did, and I'm not going to go into all the details here, was to show that in pre-B cells, so if you look at these lanes over here, which are labeled pre-B cells, we found that there was a protein associated with the heavy chain. It's labeled omega at the bottom. And this protein is not the kappa light chain. So this is a pre-B cell. It doesn't, hasn't yet rearranged its kappa and lambda light chain genes. But the pre-B cells did have some other protein that was associated with the heavy chain. It ran small. It labeled poorly. It's small, so it doesn't take up as much methionine. These were radioactively labeled cells. And then when you looked on the other side, on, we have an experiment where I took a cell line which contains D mu. D mu is a truncated form of the mu heavy chain. It did not contain that protein. I looked at another cell line in which it's called an L cell. It's a fibroblast, which I transfected with the membrane form of mu. So it has the mu heavy chain, but it does not have any light chain. So only the pre-B cells had this other protein, which we called omega. This is in our fanciful thinking. We said it's the last light chain. We'll call it omega. Okay? So no, not everybody in the lab believed this meant anything. There was this funky band. No one had seen it before. What does it mean? So the way we convinced people that this meant something was by doing a two-dimensional job. So what we did here is, remember, antibody is linked to its light chain. The heavy chain is linked to light chain by disulfide bridges. So we ran these 2D gels. So if you look at the pre-B cell over here, so in the pre-B cell, the first dimension we ran non-reducing. So we ran the sample without adding a reducing agent. We then, after the sample had run out, we ran it to the next dimension with two beta mecaptoethanol. So it'll break disulfide bridges. And you can see there's a diagonal in the middle. And there are some proteins have fallen off the diagonal. And that shows that it's linked to something else. And the di off diagonal, we see the mu2 omega2 dimers of that size. Then we see just mu2 with one omega. Then we see mu2 alone. And then we just see mu with one omega and so on. Okay, so we saw all the properties of having an antibody, though we were looking at a pre-B cell, but we were seeing a disulfide-linked tetrameric structure with two heavy chains and two new types of light chains, which we then called surrogate light chains. Okay? If you do this experiment on a B cell, this was, of course, the traditional way of looking at things. You found heavy chain with kappa. So we saw mu2, kappa2 dimers, tetramers, basically, or you just saw mu kappa uh, dimers or mu2 alone. Okay? So this established quite clearly that the heavy chain protein was physically in disulfide linkage with the light chain-like protein in pre-B cells 
and these pre-beast cells had not gone through any BDJ recombination for the light chain gene. The light chain genes, kappa and lambda, were completely germline, but they contained this other protein which behaved like a light chain, which we call the surrogate light chain. Okay, so this is to show that this protein was also on the surface of these cells. We did surface iodination. Probably not many people do this anymore, but we basically took cells, radioactively labeled them with iodine on the outside, and we showed again in pre-B cells, we could find these mu2 omega tetramers running at the right size. And in a normal B cell, we would see mu light chain tetramers. Okay, so we showed that, yes, the heavy chain associates with the surrogate light chain, and it goes to the cell's surface. It's the membrane form. So this is likely a new type of receptor that's found in pre-B cells. We went one step further, and uh, we found a second protein. And I'd actually seen this earlier on, but we'd not put it into the first paper. We found a second protein, which we called iota, for the smallest protein, which is also in the complex, but this was not disulfide linked to the mu chain. Okay, so we were seeing two surrogate light chains, omega and iota, associated with the heavy chain. So this was the presumed structure, and uh, this is uh, based on some knowledge now that I draw it this way. We have two heavy chains. We had two surrogate light chains which were disulfide linked. I haven't shown you the disulfide linkages. That was the omega chains, and then there were the two iota light chains. This is what we know of the structure now. Now, Fritz Melcher's lab, a year before we'd done our work, had published some papers showing that there were some immunoglobulin light chain-like genes that were found in pre-B cells. And he found the genes, but didn't look to see whether they made a protein at that time that associated with mu or anything else. So we assumed that maybe what we were finding associated with the heavy chain was actually the product of those genes. So we sequenced, we did, we did radio label sequencing of both omega and iota, and showed that they were identical to the genes that he had called lambda 5 and V pre-B. And we graciously agreed to go with his names. So we now call those proteins lambda 5 and V pre-B. Okay, so we have surrogate light chains associated with the heavy chain, and the surrogate light chains are lambda 5, which is uh, covalently associated, and V pre-B. Okay. And in some reviews and papers, we, I, I remember coming out with hypotheses as to how these worked, and I liked one name for these hypotheses, and we called it the ligand independent actuation of receptor, or the liar hypothesis. And this essentially said that this is a receptor that is not sensing the environment. It can form a complex. It might form a complex on the cell surface. It might form a complex that's intracellular. But it's going to, when it's assembled, it is on, in the on mode, and it's going to signal. All it's doing is sensing whether it's the right reading frame, it's not trying to see whether there's some new thing in the environment. And so this model, which we put forward a long time ago, is now the accepted model for both the pre-B receptor and the pre-T receptor, that these signal constitutively. The moment you assemble them, they're in the on mode, they signal, and they tell the cell to move on in differentiation. Okay? So we showed the veracity of this model in one study, where we look for activated tyrosine phosphorylated proteins. So if you look in a B cell, we see these tyrosine phosphorylated proteins only when the B cell is activated. So in the last lane of, of panel A, you can see we have all these activated proteins which bind to 
SH2 domains of other signaling proteins, but we see them only after the B cell is activated. However, in the pre-B cell, we don't have to activate anything, okay? So, shown in panel B, without activation, the pre-B cell has these proteins, these tyrosine phosphorylated proteins, which you can capture from the cell. The pre-BCR, this is the model of the pre-BCR, which is in the textbooks now. And this is basically, it's the heavy chain, the surrogate light chains, and then the two signaling proteins, Ig-alpha and Ig-beta, which are also signaling proteins for the B-cell receptor. So, this is now the accepted pre-B receptor. And it does, it signals constitutively to keep cells alive if they have actually made it. So, they are in the right reading frame. They deserve to live. It allows the expansion of these cells. So, the biggest expansion in the B lineage comes from the pre-B cell receptor. It also mediates allelic exclusion. So, it sends signals to shut off rearrangement at the other allele, mediating allelic exclusion. Signals also induce the rearrangement of the light chain at the next stage and shut off expression of the surrogate light chains. So, this cell will transition from being a pre-B cell with the pre-B cell receptor into a cell that has no surrogate light chains and no light chain, which will rearrange the light chain and then it will become an immature B cell, So, there's a disease called X-linked agammaglobulinemia. It's the first human immunodeficiency described. It was described by Colonel Ogden Bruton in 1952. And these were boys who had no antibodies. And it was later discovered they had no antibodies because they had no B cells. In 1952, we didn't know about B cells, but we knew they had no antibodies. But then we later discovered that these boys don't have antibodies. They get a lot of biogenic infections, infections with pus-forming bacteria, and they don't have B cells in the blood. The gene for this disease, this is an excellent gene, uh, was walked to by one group. So, the group in Sweden and Britain, so this is Edward Smith, uh, they walked to this gene and identified it as being a tyrosine kinase. So, it was called Bruton's tyrosine kinase. Owen Witte at UCLA, using a different route, he wasn't looking for the, uh, the gene in excellent agammaglobulinemia. He found a new tyrosine kinase, which also turned out to be the same kinase, BTK. So, he put two and two together and said that maybe the reason why these kids get this disease is that their pre-B receptors need to signal through BTK. And in the absence of BTK, the pre-B receptor doesn't signal. The cells don't survive this checkpoint and they end up with no B cells. So, to address this, we started to look at BTK in pre-B cells and in B cells. So, if you look at the panel called anti-PY, that's for anti-phosphotyrosine. And if you look at the band that's labeled BTK, so you have to look at the panel that is on the left, and you look at the middle lane. That is a B cell that hasn't been activated. U stands for unactivated. There is no tyrosine phosphorylated BTK in that lane, okay? However, the pre-B cell without activation already has tyrosine phosphorylated BTK. If I activate the B cell and I go to the third lane in the left panel, you'll notice there's a phosphorylated band. So, I have to activate a B cell to get BTK activated, but in the pre-B cell, BTK is constitutively activated, which is in keeping with our previous thinking about the pre-B receptor. On the right lane, we're just showing you that all three lanes had BTK in them, okay? Here's another experiment. Now, in this experiment, you're looking at B cells. So, at this time, BTK had not been connected to B cells, right? So, this is why we did this experiment. 
When we activate the B cells, we're looking at stimulation. Zero is no stimulation. And then we're looking at one minute, three minutes, five minutes, and 10 minutes after we trigger the B cell receptor. And you can notice that by the time it's about five minutes, three to five minutes, you see active phosphorylated BTK showing up. And then it'll also phosphorylate enolase, which is a substrate for any kinase. So it's showing you that there's increased kinase activity. So we are bringing down the BTK molecule, showing that it's tyrosine phosphorylated, and showing that it can also phosphorylate a target. So we are showing the activation of BTK after BCR ligation in B cells, but constitutive activation in pre-B cells. So this made the connection between the human disease where the pre-B receptor wasn't known to be defective, but we are saying now the pre-B receptor is defective because the pre-B receptor signals through BTK and these boys are born with a defective BTK. So this was the broad pathway of pre-B cell activation. If you think about at the time, the pre-BCR was going to signal constitutively, could happen from the cell surface, or we thought even from an intracellular membrane. It activates downstream kinases like Sark family kinases on sick, and then it activates BTK. And when BTK is activated, then the cell gets the signals to mediate allelic exclusion, to survive, to proliferate, to differentiate further. So now we go back to the checkpoints during B cell development. You have pro-B cells which start to rearrange the antibody genes. Then they come through the late pro-B stage to the pre-B stage. They make the pre-BCR. The cells that make the pre-BCR, so it's not going to be every cell, roughly 50% of the cells. You get three chances at each chromosome, ends up as being roughly 50%. About half of them will survive. They will make the pre-BCR. They will expand. Then they'll go into the small pre-B stage where they rearrange the light chain gene. Then they'll go on to become immature B cells where they'll be tested for receptor editing in case they're self-reactive. And then they'll go on into the periphery, into the spleen, into the lymph nodes and become mature B cells. So most of this lecture has revolved around the pre-BCR checkpoint. And the pre-BCR checkpoint is designed to actually gauge proper reading frame to see whether the antibody heavy chain gene was made in frame. So the cells that make the pre-B receptor are the cells that are going to survive, proliferate, expand into small pre-B cells, which will then rearrange light chain genes. This checkpoint is intimately connected to signaling through BTK. So the pre-B receptor activates BTK, and BTK is the tyrosine kinase encoded by a gene on the X chromosome, which is mutated in boys with Bruton's disease or X-linked agammaglobulinemia. 